the impact of the gospel, when it comes in all of its transforming power, you no longer want to live the way you once lived, but you embrace the love and grace of God. Your heart and mind and soul is set free. You know Him. Intimacy becomes a reality. Prayer important. Worship a priority. You begin to know God. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. This morning, our scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 9. And if you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 9 as we begin at verse 1 and read through to verse 19. It's a fairly lengthy passage, so please be patient with me. Again, you'll find it on page 1706 of the church Bible. If you have been visiting with us recently or worship regularly, you will know we have been steadily making our way through the book of Acts. And today we come to what is one of the best-known passages of all Scripture, not just Acts or even the New Testament, but all of Scripture, and it's the conversion of Saul. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained, regained his strength. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. Last Sunday morning, we spent most of our time looking at Acts chapter 8, and it was a passage that was particularly challenging. Stephen, a man of remarkable faith, had been serving those in need in and around Jerusalem, and he was so effective in his faith that he was arrested and tried and then stoned. And last Sunday morning, we said the story of Stephen in Acts 7 and 8 is a story about unwanted, unprecedented change. And those two phrases, unwanted and unprecedented change, also sum up chapter 9. But the focus in chapter 9 is not about, about on Stephen, it's now on Saul. And we said last week that in the Christian life, there are times when we consistently underestimate the power, magnitude, and gravitas of sin. And last Sunday morning, we also said this, if we underestimate sin, we consistently underestimate the power, gravi gravitas, and significance of the grace of God. And if last Sunday morning was focusing on the sin behind the stoning and martyrdom of Stephen, we're about to see the grace behind the conversion of Saul. Most of you are aware that Saul was born in the town of Tarsus. If you lived in downtown Jerusalem today, you got out into your car, you drove on to what is called the M5, Motorway 5, you would go 617 miles north and then west towards the town of Tarsus. Paul grew up in a Jewish family. His parents were very committed to their heritage and their background ground in Judaism, but he lived in a city that was immersed in what is called the Hellenistic culture. Alexander the Great had conquered the Roman world, and with conquering the Roman—excuse me, let me rephrase that—the Romans weren't quite there yet, so please forgive me for that—he conquered the known world, and he brought with him Greek language, Greek democracy, education, government, and so on. So, the city of Tarsus was very similar to Athens, and there were three places that had first-class universities in the ancient world. One was Alexandria, northern Egypt, the other was Athens, and the third was Tarsus. Paul was quite brilliant as a student, he was a resourceful academic. He was a natural leader. People saw in him great potential. He was intellectually bright as a button. He studied, studied under Gamaliel, who was the number one Jewish rabbi for intellectual development and discipline of his day. But please remember this, that when Paul was growing up, this is what he was taught. In order to please God, there are particular and specific ways of bringing an offering to the temple. And it's not enough to be obedient in the Old Testament law when you go to the temple. You also have to show obedience in what you wear and in how you wear it 
and dietary restrictions were very real. You simply couldn't have your choice of food. You had to be very careful what you ate and when you ate it. You had to be careful what you prayed and how often you prayed. And Paul, in fact, describes himself as a Pharisee. And Pharisees were quite intent on bringing the entire Jewish nation back to obedience of what is known as Old Testament law. And in fact, in describing himself, this is what he says. He says, if anyone else has reason to put confidence in the flesh, in other words, confidence in your upbringing, your tradition, your heritage, your background, he writes, I have more. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a member of the people of Israel, in fact, of the tribe of Benjamin. And the priests came from the tribe of Benjamin. So his background, his upbringing, could not have prepared him more for what he was doing. In fact, he goes on to say, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. Remember rules and regulations. As for zeal, I was persecuting the church. Now, please understand that. That meant this, that Paul was at the forefront of the movement to arrest, try, and incarcerate Christians in the first century. He was right there at the cutting edge, and he finishes his own description or biography, if you like, by saying this, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. That was the Apostle Paul. You will remember, of course, that when Stephen was stoned to death, Saul was standing there holding the cloaks, giving credence to all that was taking place. Now, all of that is leading up to Acts chapter 9. Paul, in all probability, would have heard of Christ. He would have heard of his teaching. He would have heard of the impact his teaching was making. He would have heard of the circumstances of his death. He would have heard of the claims made about his resurrection and so on. So, it wasn't that Paul had never heard of Christ. In fact, it was the opposite. Because he'd heard of Christ, he was more than committed. In fact, he delighted in persecuting the church. That's what was going on. Because to Paul, Jesus was nothing more than a political anarchist and a religious blasphemer that's what was going on. But the question is this. Now, I am no psychologist, but I know enough of human behavior to ask the question, what was it that was driving Saul? He was absolutely enraged about this new movement who talked about you could actually have intimacy with the living God. You could know Him, and you could pray to Him any moment, any time of day. You didn't have to be dressed in particular clothes. You didn't have to bring a particular sacrifice to the temple, but intimacy and the love and the grace of God was real. And yet, Paul was enraged. And I suspect this that God was at work in the life of the Apostle Paul, 
drawing him to himself, giving him little hints of his love and his goodness and his forgiveness and his grace. But his background and all that he'd chosen to believe were causing him great difficulty in responding. And so, rather than deal with the issue, Paul is committed to eradicating it, because what we often experience and I certainly experienced it in my own life before coming to faith, was this, that when God begins to go to work in a person's life, it is seriously unnerving and unsettling, because no one likes to think that we don't know Him, that we don't have a relationship with Him. And calling Saul out of a life of restrictions and rules and regulations into a relationship was quite a challenge for the Apostle Paul. So, all of that was going on there. And quite honestly, please hear this. I know it was true in my own life. I suspect it was true for Paul, and it may be true for you, that Paul enjoyed living in spiritual darkness. And let me explain what I mean, because that sounds awful. When Jesus said, I have come to give you the truth, and the truth shall set you free, free from rules, free from regulations, free to know God as He truly is. That's what He was saying. But not only did He say, I've come to set you free, He said this, woe to you blind Pharisee, because His point was this, that sin in all of its power, remember we said we consistently underestimate it, it is appealing, it is attractive, it is enslaving, and it's absolutely a addictive. And that was the Apostle Paul going to Damascus, going with a letter of authority. He was large and in charge, and he could arrest anyone he wanted, have them tried and incarcerated. And the more he was involved, the more affirmation and confirmation that he got that he was right, until he met the risen Christ. Now, I've used this quotation several times over the last two years, so please forgive me if you're fed up hearing it, but it seems appropriate today. And it begins to reflect on what it means to be living in spiritual darkness. Professor Stephen Hawking, who is a well-known theoretical physicist, said this, religion is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. And John Lennox, professor of mathematics and philosophy of science at Oxford University, responded and said, atheism is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the light. And I think Saul was afraid of the light because Saul understood this, that once he stepped forward and submitted and surrendered and committed his life to Christ, his life would change forever. And it would. But Saul liked his old life. He liked being large and in charge. He liked being a Pharisee. He liked telling people where they're wrong and what to wear and what not to wear and how to sacrifice and when to sacrifice and so on. His life was defined by rules and regulations, not 
by a relationship, and he was afraid to step away from it because it was the comfortable and the known. And please hear this. And if you're taking notes this morning, write this down. If you're watching by television, pay attention. Whenever God begins to work in a person's life and He draws that individual to Himself, the love and the grace and the impact of the gospel, when it comes in all of its transforming power, you no longer want to live the way you once lived, but you embrace the love and grace of God. Your heart and mind and soul is set free. You know Him. Intimacy becomes a reality. Prayer important. Worship a priority. You begin to know God. And Paul was fearful of leaving the old and entering into the new. But what was it that made the difference? Well, the passage tells us, and what does it say? As he headed towards, or he neared Damascus, on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, please understand the significance of what is happening there. Saul, for the first time in his adult life, met with the risen Christ, and he met Christ in all of his wonder and majesty and glory. And Saul could not sit atop his horse, twiddling his thumbs and saying, now, I hear what you're saying, but are there some options out there I can explore? The very opposite was the case, because here was the call of God in all of its sovereign, transforming, creative power. He spoke, and Saul was changed. Who are you, Lord? And when he hears him say, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, Saul begins to realize that where he had been was only a preparation for what was to come, because it's not rules and regulations or background or tradition. It is a relationship. And the question is this, have you got to the point in your own life where you freely recognize that you've sinned against Him and that nothing can save you or bring you into a relationship with Him except the love and grace and goodness of God? God. And when you are at that point, and you're ready to step forward and say, Lord Jesus, I need you to forgive me and change me, and I wholeheartedly, comprehensively submit and surrender my life to your rule and reign, that's what it means to enter into a relationship with Him. That's the transforming part, because Paul experienced what many had before and what millions have subsequently experienced, and it's this. The same Holy Spirit 
Spirit, the same moral and supernatural power that brought Christ back from the dead now lives in us when you submit and surrender to Him. And that's what happened to Saul. Now, having said all of that, let me try and wrap it up this morning because I'm very conscious of our time. And allow me to say this. Towards the end of the passage, we read about Ananias. And do you imagine for a second, the Sunday before meeting Saul in Damascus, that Ananias in a service ever, ever imagined that he would become the mentor to the apostle Paul? Do you imagine for a second that he thought God would call him to reach out and touch and be God's instrument in the life of Saul? But that's exactly what happened. So here's my closing thought this morning. I wonder if there is someone in your life this week whom you need to reach out and touch and tell them, I'm praying for you. I'm so sorry you're going through this, but I'm there for you. Is there someone you need to reach out whom you haven't spoken to for months or maybe years in your own family? Is there someone whom you need to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I got it wrong. Let me start again. Will there be someone in your life this week whom you should touch? Here was Ananias entering into a ministry we still hold in high regard today. He entered into radical, personal, gospel-driven relationship and modeled for Saul what Christianity was all about. How sensitive are we to the call of God in our life. The Holy Spirit was at life in the work of Saul. He couldn't see it. The risen Christ spoke into his life, called on Ananias. Ananias reluctantly stepped forward. But our response is what? As a result of this table, to be able to say, my heart is filled with thankfulness to him who bore my pain. And I wonder if that's a step you need to take this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture. Thank you for the challenge it contains. Thank you for all of your call upon our lives. And enable us, please, in this coming week to be sensitive to your Spirit, responsive to your Word, and to live out our faith in the messiness and distraction of daily living. Father, thank you for your love and grace towards us and enable us, please, to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On Friday, October 20th at 7 p.m., First Presbyterian Church in downtown Greenville will host a celebration in music with a choir of 120 voices and a full symphony orchestra 
Musicians from the Music and Worship Arts Ministry of First Presbyterian Church, Blue Ridge Presbyterian Church, and the North Greenville University's Klein School of Music, as well as other local musicians, will present a concert celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Admission is free and open to the public. For more information, visit firstpresgreenville.org or call 235-0496. Don't miss a celebration of music at First Pres Greenville. 